Well, good morning once again. Our scripture reading is listed in the bulletin as being Deuteronomy 4.1, but I'm actually going to read probably through verse number 8, and if the Spirit leads so that we read more than that, that's okay too. Deuteronomy 4, 1 through somewhere. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live. And go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering in order to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Will you pray with me once again? God Almighty, Lord, I pray that as I preach this morning, these would not be my words, but I pray that they would be your words. I pray that you would give me the words that you would have me to say. Don't lead me, O God, to say anything that that would be harmful to the cause of your kingdom or that is not in your heart for me to share with these people. If I say anything that I shouldn't, Lord, I pray that you would bring it to nothing. Lord, if I forget anything that I should say, I pray that you would impress it on the hearts of these people anyway. Lord, but above all, I pray that They would leave this morning exulting in you and what you have done for them. Above all things, O God. In Christ's name, amen. So we are, as most of you know, in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, We've been in the book of Deuteronomy for one week. This is our second week. Last week, we spent time looking backwards at what has happened before the book of Deuteronomy. So the book of Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible, and it picks up on a story that has happened from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And last week, we summarized very briefly in about 30 to 45 minutes those four books of the Bible, and I'm going to do it in about two or three now just to try to look back. But the story begins with Adam and Eve. The story begins with God giving Adam and Eve a command to eat of all the trees except one tree. God set before them a choice. You can choose life or you can choose death. And of course, Adam and Eve chose death. So God cursed the ground, he brought curse to the land, and he drove them out of his presence. A few chapters later in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and he promises Abraham, he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And I'm going to bless your descendants, as a great nation, and I'm going to use them to bless the world and bring them to a land that I have prepared for them. And if you're listening carefully, 
If you've been paying attention up in the book of Genesis as you're reading it, you'll see that as a reversal of the curse to Adam and Eve. They were cursed. They were driven from the land. Abraham and his descendants will be blessed, and they will bless the entire world, and they will return to the land. God is promising in Abraham to undo everything that Adam and Eve did. And so Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, they were, in, they were enslaved in Egypt. And God brought them up out of slavery. He redeemed them. He spared no expense. He flexed his right arm as he brought them out of slavery. Through the Red Sea with the armies of Pharaoh chasing them, he brought them through death in order to escape from death. And he came and made a relationship with them. He said, I am Yahweh, or the Lord. Anytime you read the Lord in Scripture, the underlying Hebrew word is Yahweh. It's God's name. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Walk before me and do these things. And as we mentioned last week, Israel didn't do those things because they're human. And because innate in a human heart is the tendency for rebellion. So instead of entering the land like God had promised them, or God had planned for them, They didn't want to enter the land, and so they wound up wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. The generation that came up out of Egypt died in the wilderness. The only people left alive at the end of those 40 years were people who were under the age of 20 coming out of Egypt. Only the kids. Only the kids and those who had not been born. And Moses, who is at this point an old man, leads this people up right to the edge of the Jordan River right to the edge of the promised land. And these people weren't around to hear and to see the original meeting with God at Mount Sinai. They had to hear God's commands again. And so Moses takes time to go through his instructions for the people a second time. That's what Deuteronomy means. It means second law or second instruction. That's the story so far. What I want to do this morning is to have maybe another introduction, if we can, to the book of Deuteronomy. Last week we looked at the story so far. This week I want to look at an overview of the book of Deuteronomy. What is Deuteronomy trying to teach us? In the coming weeks we'll take little bits and pieces of the sermon and we'll dive into those. We'll look at at those things in depth. But this morning I just want to give an overview of the book. If I only had to preach or was only able to preach one message on Deuteronomy, this would be the message. My goal is that we leave this morning with an understanding of what this book is trying to teach us. This book that even though it might not be that familiar to us, Right? It was written 3,000 years ago by people who don't share our culture at all. It's a book that can seem weird and off-putting, but it's the third most quoted and referenced book in the New Testament. So if we're going to understand the New Testament, if we're going to understand the Savior who quoted this book, then we need to look into this book to see what it says. How many people in this room have seen The Princess Bride? Show of hands. Several people. How many people like really love The Princess Bride? Like it's one of your top five movies. Is there anyone? No one? No one. How many people have no idea what I'm talking about? <laughs> Some people. So The Princess Bride is a movie that you've probably seen referenced here or there. Uh, but it's full of all these wacky characters and it's this fairy tale. And you should watch it at least once if you're you know, going to... You should just watch it. It's, it's fun. Um, Without telling you the entire plot, there are at least three characters. Uh, One of them is called the Dread Pirate Roberts. Uh, 
he is a really bad guy. Uh, he, you know, known for killing people, raping, pillaging, the whole nine yards. And he is pursuing this group of guys who are kind of doing their own bad thing, but that's a different, you know, I'm not going to tell you the entire story. Just watch the movie. He's pursuing these, these three guys who are running from him. One of the guys is a short little Italian guy who I keep wanting to say Vinicius, but that's not it, and I can't remember his name. Vinicius is a soccer player and not the guy in this movie. But anyway, there's a short Italian guy who always says, inconceivable, whenever something he's not expecting happens. So one of the things they do is they, they're climbing up a rope up these cliffs in order to run away from this guy. And this pirate, he's like scaling the rope like way faster than they were. And they get to the top, they beat him to the top, and they pull out a knife and they start cutting this rope because they're trying to get away from him. Right? Do you guys remember this? This is familiar to you all? They're cutting this rope to try to get away from him. And finally they cut it off and the rope slides off the cliff. Only it's not a cliff, it's this really terrible CGI set in Hollywood somewhere. Anyway, it slides off the cliff and it falls down and they're like, finally we're rid of him. And they look over the edge and they see the pirate clinging to the cliff. And this little short Italian guy who always says inconceivable, he just looks down and he's like, inconceivable! And then his friend, the guy he was with, named Anigo Montoya, I remember his name, he looks at him and he says, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Inconceivable means something that it's so out of, you know, out of the mind that it can't even happen. It's inconceivable that I'm going to receive a postcard from Mars in the next year. Right? It's just not going to happen. But this guy was using it to mean something that, oh, I wasn't expecting that. That's inconceivable. So he looks at him and he says, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. There is a word that can get us tripped up a little bit as we look through the book of Deuteronomy, as we study scripture as a whole. And I want to make sure that we don't. That word is the word law. L-A-W. Because we, we know, as Western people, what a law is, right? The, the common go-to one is a speed limit. There is, in, somewhere in the state of Michigan, you know, a, a written-down code of things that are against the law and things that are not. So somewhere in a book in Lansing, it says that I'm not allowed to drive faster than 70 miles an hour on US-23 and I-75 when I'm driving up here to church. That's what the law says. Whether or not I do is a different story, but that's what the law says. And if, you know, I'm driving 82 or whatever it is, and a cop pulls me over and he says license and registration, yada, 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 he can give me a ticket or give me points on my license because I have broken the law. There's a very clear statute, and if I break it, I get there's a very clear punishment. When we think of the word law, that's what we think of a list of rules that's codified somewhere in a book, either in Washington, D.C., or in Lansing, or in City Hall, or in the Clayton Township Hall, or somewhere. That's what a law is. It doesn't help. Now, hear my words carefully, as I'm going to sound like I'm getting into trouble, but I don't, I'm not. It doesn't help that when Paul in the New Testament talks about the law, he talks about a weight of something that just, it, it's almost like it's something that hangs around our neck. It's something that brings condemnation, God's moral commandments hanging over us. And he talks about how we can never keep this law, how it's something that brings death to us, but that we need to hear the grace of Jesus Christ to tell us that Jesus Christ kept the law for us, right? This, this is familiar to us. We are reformed people. We really like the teachings of Paul. 
And sometimes, when we think about our idea of what the law is, and when we think about how Paul writes about the law, we can come to the wrong conclusion that the Old Testament is full of a list of commandments that God gave to the nation of Israel. He said, you guys have to do all of these things if you're going to please me. And that, of course, they couldn't. So we get to the New Testament. We finally read in the Gospels, we read the Gospel of Jesus Christ and how he came to save us from our sins. That's, that's not correct. I see how we get there as a people. But it's not correct that the Old Testament is all about law and the New Testament is all about gospel. The fact is that the New Testament contains law and gospel. And the Old Testament contains law and and gospel, right? I can read through the New Testament. I read through the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus explains the law. And not only does he explain the law, he, it almost seems like he adds stuff to it, but he's really just explaining it. He says, you guys think that you keep the sixth commandment by not killing people, but if you hate your brother, that's basically the same thing. So as we read Jesus, right, the guy who's supposed to be, you know, super loving and super, uh, super gracious and embracing, he's not, you know, the God of the Old Testament, or so we sometimes think, Jesus is a God who tells us law, but he's also a God who gives us grace. And as we read through the Old Testament, sometimes I think that we get hung up on the word law, because sometimes the first five books of the Bible are called law, right? But the word there for law, it's, that's probably not the best word for it, because when we think law, we think, you know, codified statutes that say you can do this, you can't do this. But the Old Testament, especially the first five books of the Bible, are a story that, yes, contain God's commands, but also contain God's will for his people, God's relationship with his people. So I want us to be careful that as we say the word law, that we're not thinking something it doesn't mean. Right? You know, you keep using that word. It doesn't mean what you think it means. Let's not use it in an inappropriate way. God gives us his instruction in the Old Testament. That is what the book of Deuteronomy is. That's what Genesis through Deuteronomy is. That's really what the entire Old Testament is. Is God telling us who he is. God telling his people how to live in relationship with him. You see, it's not true that the law is just a list of things that we have to keep in order to have a permanent relationship with God. There's three things that I want to mention this morning, you know, kind of three movements in the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to kind of hit each one, and as I said, in the coming weeks, we're going to, we'll look at each one of those more in depth. But I want to hit three movements. The first is God's relationship with his people, God's relationship with Israel. Which came first? God saving his people out of Egypt or God giving them his commandments on Mount Sinai? Shout it out. Egypt, Egypt, right? So before God ever gives Israel any commandments, before he ever says, hey, you have to do these things, he goes down to them when they're enslaved. He redeems them. He spares no expense in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. He flexes his strong right arm and pulls them out. He brings them through death to escape death in order to come to Mount Sinai so they can have a relationship with him. Before he gives them any commandments, he does that for them. And when he gives them the Ten Commandments, the very, the very title is, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
So because of that, then he goes on and says, have no other gods before me. Don't make any graven images. Keep the Sabbath. Don't take my name in vain. All of that is based on what God has already done for them. So when God came down in order to enter into a relationship with the nation of Israel, he did not do so because they were a righteous nation. He did not do so because they were the people who were, you know, they were the most moral of all the people. So as he was, you know, surveying the people in order to pick somebody, it's not as though he was like, oh, they're the best ones, so I'm just going to pick them. All of the least work to do. That's not what God did. God did not say, hey, I'm going to pick the greatest nation of all of the people. I'm going to pick the most militarily powerful. I'm going to pick, you know, Assyria or Rome or Babylon or the United States or any of these things. No, he didn't, he didn't do that. He picked the weakest nation. And he saved them, not because they were any good, but he saved them purely to show how great of a God he is. And so before we have any moral commands to the nation of Israel, we have a relationship already established. They did not have to keep these moral commands in order to establish that relationship. It came after. God promised Abraham that he would reverse what Adam and Eve did through Abraham and his descendants. And even though Abraham was imperfect, even though Israel kept rebelling, God was still going to be faithful to his promises. He was still going to work in and through his people to accomplish his purposes. These commands, God's instruction for the nation, came after So that's the first point. God chose Israel before he gave them the commands. Second thing, God's commands are a way to live. And this gets into our passage for this morning. Let me read Deuteronomy 4.1 again. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, why? That you may live. Do them that you may live, and so that you may go in and take possession of the land that Yahweh, the God of your fathers, is giving you. If we get stuck in this law as, you know, list of commands that we have to do in order to get into heaven thing, then I think sometimes we think that God's blessing is just something that he gives us after we've jumped through all of those hoops. Oh, you've checked that box and you've checked that box. Good job. Congratulations, you have my blessing. But I think there's a distinction that needs to be made. The laws are not the thing that we have to necessarily do to keep blessing. The laws are the blessing itself. Let me say that again. The laws are not necessarily the thing that you have to do in order to get the blessing. The laws are the blessing itself. It might not seem like there's a difference, but there is. There's a subtle difference there, and I want us to get it. As Israel's going into this land, as they're going to be a society who lives by rules and laws, God wants them to be able to live in harmony with each other, in harmony with the people around them, in harmony with God himself. And in order to do that, he says, these are the ways that you can have blessing in the land. Do you want to have good relationships with, with, you know, your neighbors? Do you want to have good relationships with the nation around you? Well, then don't kill other people. Don't hate other people. Be kind to the poor. Be kind to the people who are sojourners among you, the people of other nations who are wandering among you. Be kind to them. Do what is right. Do you want to have a good relationship with God? 
then come to the temple and use this sacrificial system. The law is not a burden, or it's not supposed to be a burden that's over our heads. It's supposed to be a way of blessing. There were other nations who served other gods. And their gods, because their gods were false or somehow perverted or demonic, their gods did not give them instructions on how to live and what to do. They had to guess. They had to say, oh, maybe we need to sacrifice our kids to Moloch. Maybe we need to you know, throw a virgin in the volcano. Maybe we need to do all these things because we don't know how to have a right relationship with God. But it is not that way with our God. God gives us his instructions. He says, this is how you live peaceably with the people around you. This is how you live peaceably with me. This is what you have to do. Keep these moral commands. There's a phrase that's used in the book of Deuteronomy, and we'll, we'll get to this again. Now, it's especially in Deuteronomy like 28, 29 in there. It's really flushed out. But the phrase is, I set before you a blessing and a curse. If you read Deuteronomy, you'll, you'll read that. And if you read Deuteronomy, you're supposed to hear, you're suppo- your mind's supposed to be triggered and be like, oh, that goes back to Adam and Eve, right? Because that's what happened to Adam and Eve. God gave them a command, and he set before them, he set in front of them a blessing that they could choose or a curse. Either they could follow God's command and steer clear of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and just eat the tree of life and enjoy fellowship with God and enjoy God's blessing, or... They could choose the curse. They could eat of the forbidden tree. They could not throw the snake out of the garden like they were supposed to. They could try their own way to God. And what did they do? They chose the curse. And so God gives Israel really the same choice. You can serve me. You can live in this way of blessing in the land. Or you can choose a curse. You can choose to not live in this way of blessing, and you can choose in a way that doesn't work like it's supposed to. Right? God is the God who created heaven and earth. He's the one who designed how this world works. So he's given us the rules, the instructions for living according to how this world works so that we may be blessed. And he just gives it to him. He says, gives it to the nation of Israel. He says, you can choose the curse or you can choose blessing. It's up to you. But there's still a tension in the book of Deuteronomy. There's still an issue that hasn't been resolved as we get to this point. We see that issue, I think, most vividly portrayed in the story of Noah, a story that we're familiar with. Noah was a descendant of Adam and Eve. It happens just a couple, couple chapters after Adam and Eve you know, rebelled against God and were kicked out of the garden The world became so corrupt, so full of violence, so full of wickedness, that God came to the conclusion, he says, I need to destroy everyone. And so he did. He submerged everyone underwater. The only people that survived were Noah and his wife and Noah's three sons and their three wives. Eight people survived. Noah, according to the Bible, found grace in God's eyes. He found favor in God's sight. The Bible describes him as a righteous man. 
So theoretically, you would think that, you know, if you hadn't read this story through, you would think that, okay, all of these people are wicked, but this one guy's good. So maybe if we get rid of all of them and we just have a new society from him, maybe that's going to fix everything, right? That, that makes sense if you're reading the story without knowing the ending. Maybe this guy's going to be it. And so that's, that's kind of what the story leads you to believe. Like Noah steps out into a beautiful new world. There's a rainbow. God, Noah you know, sacrifices to God. God comes down and makes a special relationship with Noah. And you're supposed to be like, oh, this is the new Eden. This is God restoring what's already been done. And your mind's supposed to be like, oh, yeah. Then you keep reading. And so Noah gets drunk. Noah's involved in some sin that we're not really sure what it is. It's kind of weird and complicated, and I'm not going to go into details on that, but he's involved in some kind of sin with his sons. And we see that, oh, maybe, maybe the problem wasn't fixed in the flood. Maybe the problem is in the human heart. See, time after time throughout the Bible, throughout the story, we look forward to the person who's going to overthrow the curse. The person who's going to finally stomp the head of the snake, finally undo everything that Adam and Eve had done. And every time we get to a new person in the Bible, we think, oh, maybe this is the person. Maybe this is the thing that's going to do it. But time after time after time after time, it doesn't work. There's something in the human heart that needs to be fixed. And this is the third movement now. God chose Israel. God gave Israel a way to live in blessing. But that still doesn't fix the heart issue. Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your own good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong the heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. He chose you above all the peoples as you are this day. Here's what he says. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Without going into details, part of God's relationship with Abraham and his children involved circumcision. It involved the taking away of something so that they were a people marked by that taking away. That's how you told, how you could tell someone who was one of the people of God from someone who was not one of the people of God, whether or not they were circumcised. There was something that was taken away from them and thrown away, and it was no longer a part of them. What the book of Deuteronomy is saying here, what the book of Deuteronomy is telling us here is that what really matters is not physical circumcision, but it's the circumcision of the heart. There's something in your heart that needs to be taken away. There's something deep inside of you, something dark, something black, something that's horrible. And you could try as you might to live in this way of blessing, 
You can try as you might to do what God has, has instructed his people to do and not choose the curse and to choose the blessing and go in and replace the nations that did wickedness and finally be the people that are going to bring blessing to this holy land. You can try that, but until your heart is changed, it's not going to work. And as we look through the story of Scripture, we see the nation of Israel, yes, they went into the land. Yes, they did many good things for their God, but they did many things that were forbidden in the book of Deuteronomy. They set up Asherah poles. They set up idols to other gods, idol, or altars to other gods, altars to Baal. They did these things that they weren't supposed to do. And just as the scripture says, they had the choice between a blessing and a curse. They chose the curse. And instead of being blessed and living in the land, they were removed from the land. Nations of Babylon and Assyria came in and took them out of this place of promised blessing because they did not circumcise their heart. They could not circumcise their heart. Deuteronomy 30. There it is. Verse number one, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. So this is after they're removed from the land. And they remember, oh, there were blessings and curses. And you return to the Lord your God, you and your children. And if you obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And here's, here's the money bit, money bit. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Before we had obey these commands and do them, love God so that you may live, circumcise your heart so that you may live. But here in this verse, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Who will do it? Your God will do it. He will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. People of God, there is gospel in the Old Testament. And we have it right here. We know that try as we might, even though it's laid out right in front of us, try as we might, we will choose cursing every time over against blessing. Our hearts need to be changed. And we have a promise from God that he will circumcise our hearts. He will take away the sinful bits from us. He will cut it off. He will throw it away so that we may live. I think our takeaway this morning, what we need to walk away from this thinking, is that God has given us a way of blessing and a way of cursing that we need to be changed in order to live into.
the culture will tell us something different. The culture will tell us that what is in our hearts, the wickedness, the darkness that is in our hearts, is natural. And that if we follow our hearts and do what we want to do, then that is the way to blessing. When in reality, it's the way to cursing. Two examples. I think that might make everyone uncomfortable, and that's probably best. This month is Pride Month. This month is a month that's set aside. It's set aside to affirm their humanity and their dignity, which I wholeheartedly support. And it's set aside to affirm their lifestyle, which I wholeheartedly reject. And Scripture wholeheartedly rejects. But to follow in, that, follow in the lies that that culture tells us is to say, there is something sinful in me that needs to be embraced. Experiencing same-sex attraction, even though, it's, even though it's not part of God's original design, even if you are born with it, the culture says, just embrace that. If you embrace that, that's the way to life. That's the way to avoid you know, this, this lifestyle of cursing. But that's not true. The reality is that there's something inside our heart that needs to be taken away. We need to, be, we need to repent of our sins. We need to be converted. We need to be made alive. We need to be made more and more like Christ. On the flip side of the cultural coin, there is a tendency for us to dislike those who are not like us. To be, to be afraid of, to, to hold at arm's length the people who are not from our own culture, the people who do not share our own values. And in our own hearts, we, in order to affirm the darkness that is in our hearts, we will seek out voices that tell us that's okay. We will seek out Bible verses, people that quote God's word to say, hey, it's okay to not like people who are not like you. But that's the same thing. That's the same thing as just looking in your heart and saying what is in there is okay. When scripture tells us, Christianity tells us that what is inside of us is broken. It's corrupt. It needs to be cut off, circumcised. It needs to be thrown away. We need to be circumcised by our God if we are going to have life. And scripture tells us that that life is available. We will be made alive if we repent of our sins. We can be born again. We can become a new person, not by ourselves. We've tried that. But because of the work of Jesus Christ in our lives, he offers a new heart to us. And only by having a new heart from God only by having a new heart from God can we live in a way that brings blessing upon ourselves and upon the world. Will you pray with me?